Welcome to Soul Stories, deep, open, and true. A production of the 224 Ecospace, where changemakers work, create, and lead. I'm Shelley Best, and I'll be your guide. The year was 1962. That's when I was born to Doris and Cecil Best, and our life was happening in Norfolk, Connecticut. I grew up in a family where there was a lot of stuff going on because it was a time of turmoil for the country, and my father had a passion for civil rights and activism. So while he was spending his time at work and then later at different community meetings, my mother was doing her best to hold it down in our household up in Norfolk, Connecticut. Now, you have to get an understanding that doing time holding your family down in Norfolk, Connecticut, as the only black family in the town, was not an easy thing to do. So for my mother, in many ways, it was a breaking point. And yet here I was, her newest baby, and I think I came into the world sort of a challenge to her. Some years later, I had the experience of going through a guided meditation where I was healing the wound between me and my mother, and I had this experience where the guide had me go through my birthing process, and in a spiritual kind of way, I remembered that she really didn't want to have another baby. She didn't want to have me, but in 1962, abortion was not something that was legal. So my mother had a conversation with God that, God, I don't want this baby. And God said, Doris, you give birth to the baby and I'll send other mothers to take care of her. Don't worry, I'll send other mothers to take care of her. So for me, I have this scene where I remember myself standing up in my crib. I was wearing my blue footsie pajamas and I was standing in the crib and I was calling out and I was crying and I was frustrated. And yes, I do remember standing in my crib and I was calling on my mother, but I knew she would not come and she did not come. So as an act of rebellion, I propped myself on the edge of my crib, and my crib was right next to my parents' bed, and I propped myself on the edge, and I propelled myself through the air and landed on my parents' bed. That's where I took on my own private revolution. Yes, I was going to have a revolution. And my mother's lipstick was on the top of her dresser. And I took that lipstick and I ran it all through the room. I wanted people in my family to know that I was not satisfied with my existence as it was. And I wanted them to know. I wanted them to know. And so eventually my father and my older sister Sandy came home from where they were and they saw my private revolution that had happened in my parents' bedroom, and they knew that my mother was not functioning at some level. Not that they explained it to me, a child under the age of two, but they took care of me in that moment. And it was my sister Sandy who had that way of being my extra mother. My sister Sandy was some 12 years older than me, and she was struggling in the midst of being the only black female in our entire high school in our town at that time. And she didn't really fit in well. 
my brother had the privilege of being the jock and everyone loved the black male jock in the town because he was good at soccer and he was good at basketball and he was beloved. But my sister Sandy was sort of a misfit and this caused a breaking for her in many ways. I can remember my sister Sandy talking to me one morning and she said to me to be quiet, be quiet. I'm going to read you this Dr. Seuss book and then I'm going to go for a walk in the woods with our bulldog and an Afghan. I'm going to go for a walk. You see, we lived out in Norfolk, Connecticut on 15 acres of land and there were trees and woods for everywhere that you could see. And so when my sister Sandy said she was going to go for this walk, I just accepted it as what she said. But I was thinking, we don't have a bulldog. So how is she going to go for a walk with the dog? You see, at this time, I was probably about four, and my parents had moved me into my sister's bedroom because they were getting ready for the new baby to come. And so Sandy and I had grown closer together, and I was pondering, bulldog and going for a walk in the woods? Well, I fell back asleep, and eventually my mother woke me up, and as was common with my mother in the midst of all of her struggles, she came into the room and she said, where is Sandy? Where is your sister Sandy? And I was waking up from the fog and I said, Mommy, Sandy said that she's going for a walk in the woods with the bulldog and an Afghan. What bulldog? We don't have a bulldog. And so my mother just ran through the house, just all wound up, and I was kind of perplexed. And so the next scene that came into my sight and my memory is of the state police coming to our house and how the police had just taken over our driveway and front yard, and then they brought bloodhounds to our front yard. And I can remember one of the police officers saying to me, go and get a pair of your sister's shoes, get a pair of her shoes so the dog can catch her scent. And my mother was just running back and forward in the house and she was trying to calm herself down and I guess make herself more hysterical. And my mother had this way of just chain smoking and chain smoking Salem cigarettes. And she said, I've got to get in touch with your father. You see, my father was away at National Guard drill and He was camping out in the woods, so they had to send a message to him out where he was camping and have him come home because it was urgent that he come home because it seems that not only had Sandy gone up in the woods with the Afghan and an imaginary bulldog, but she also had taken my father's favorite ivory-handled rifle and she was up in the woods. I can remember another scene where suddenly there was dust just swirling in our front yard and it swirled the debris of our yard around and a helicopter landed in the front yard of our house and my father got off the helicopter in his military uniform. Daddy had come home. Daddy had come home and he was gonna help us make sense of the situation. The next scene I can remember was the police bringing my sister Sandy into our kitchen and she had an Afghan around her shoulders and she was crying. 
and they said that they were going to have to take her away. It seems she had had a nervous breakdown. And just like my mother, they were gonna take her to Sandy Hook to the mental hospital where they were going to give her some help. Well, my sister stayed at the mental hospital for a couple of weeks and because our family was the type that believed in denial, we got dressed up and we went to visit my sister Sandy on Easter morning. In our family photograph collection, there is a portrait that's taken of each one of us. And even though we were in the midst of a family crisis, somehow my grandmother, my grandmother Reeves, she still made it a point to make sure we all had new outfits for that Easter morning. My younger sister, Sharon, who at the time might have been only two herself, she was there in a lovely little pink outfit and those red hard children's shoes. And then I had a red, white, and blue coat and matching dress for a wonderful Easter morning. And in the picture, I had those lovely little white socks with the lace. And I too had some wonderful Mary Janes and my hair had a brand new press and curl. Then there was a picture of my mother there in the midst and she was wearing a flowered coat and she had a matching flower dress. My brother Stephen, my oldest brother, he was wearing a lovely modern 60s style brown suit, similar to what the Beatles would have worn on television. And there was my father wearing his black suit and he was smiling as well in the photograph. And finally, let's not forget my sister Sandy, the one who was in the mental hospital. She was wearing a yellow dress and a yellow matching coat. The family all came together and posed for Easter morning as if there was nothing wrong. Nothing wrong, but everything was wrong. Well, Stanley finally came home from the hospital and she went back to school and they sent her back to finish her senior year of high school at Regional High School up in Winston, Connecticut. It wasn't easy for Sandy to go back to school, but she did what she had to do and she knew that the only way she was going to get out of our family house was to graduate from school. So she did what she had to do and she graduated from school and then to be a future successful woman, my parents decided that Sandy would be a nurse. Sandy told me that she never really wanted to be a nurse. She wasn't interested in being a nurse, but she knew it was the only way to get out of the house. So Sandy decided to go to nursing school at Hartford Hospital. So what seemed like very far away, Sandy left and I was left sort of alone without her because my mother went back to not really functioning. My father went back to being a workaholic my brother, he was still being the jock, and my younger sister was tied up in being the baby of the family. Well, as you can imagine, Sandy didn't do well in nursing school, and the next thing we knew, it was sort of hush-hush, but Sandy was pregnant, and she was going to have a very quick wedding. So my sister got married, and 
They decided to move to Waterbury, where her then-husband, Greg, lived, and she moved into their family house. Soon after, she gave birth to her child, Dawn, who was a lovely, lighted baby girl who made everybody very happy, except Sandy struggled with what it was to be a mother and a new bride. And we found out that Greg liked to beat Sandy from time to time, and the challenges that she had with her mental health and the fact that now we had a word for it, Sandy was bipolar. And Greg liked to beat Sandy up, and my father and mother had a conversation one day, and I heard them saying that my father had to get my sister Sandy because she was walking through the streets of Waterbury in her slip, and she left the baby in the house not being taken care of. So my father did what he had to do. He grabbed a hold of her baby, Dawn, and brought her to our house. And then Sandy once again was sent to the mental hospital. This ended up being a cycle for us where every winter Sandy would go to the mental hospital and every spring she would come out. Well, time marched on and my parents ended up getting a divorce for all kinds of reasons. And my niece Dawn ended up going to live with my grandparents in Goshen, Connecticut. Sweet little niece living with my older grandparents, but they took wonderful care of her. In the meantime, nobody really took care of Sandy. She had to kind of take care of herself. So every winter she was in the mental hospital and every spring she came out. And in order to earn a living at that time, she took the life of a streetwalker, a prostitute here in Hartford, Connecticut. She would walk the streets in her 70s outfits. And at that time, prostitutes loved to dress in bright colors and shimmers and platform shoes and big hair. And that was my sister Sandy. Spring, she'd come out and she'd work the streets through summer and fall, and then in winter, she'd go back into the mental hospital. In our family, the rest of the family didn't really understand Sandy, not like I did. So she would always call me up and fill me in on what was going on, and really it was too much information for a child my age. Once my parents were divorced, We ended up moving to Torrington, and I can remember my sister Sandy would call me almost as a secret conversation because my mother didn't want to know anything about what Sandy was doing. They just had an estranged relationship. But I remember that no matter what, Sandy and I were one. We were bonded for life. And so I can remember Sandy giving me a call and checking in with me one day after we had moved to Torrington with my mother. And she's like, I'm going to come and see you. I'm like, really? Yes, I'm going to come and visit you in Torrington. I'm going to take the bus from Hartford, and I'm going to come and visit you in Torrington. And I'm like, yeah. She's like, but don't tell Mommy I'm coming. And I said, okay, I won't tell her. Well, the weekend that she was to come, 
the rain started coming down and it was raining and raining and flooding was starting to happen in Torrington. But I was determined that I was going to meet my sister at the bus stop. So as a precocious 12-year-old, I walked to the bus stop and I remember seeing that bus there and I saw Sandy get off the bus and in full form, Sandy was wearing vibrant metallic colors. She had bright blue eyeshadow and silver shimmery uh, sparkles in her outfit and Sandy was in full form. She had high platform shoes and her suitcase and she didn't at all look like Torrington, Connecticut. So I grabbed a hold of her suitcase and I said, I'll take you to where we live. And so we walked and we walked in the rain and I got her to our house. And when I brought her into the living room, my mother looked in shock and horror and said, what are you doing here? Sandy was hurt. She couldn't believe that was the greeting she had received from my mother. And my mother said, you cannot stay here. No, you cannot stay here. I'm like, mommy, please let Sandy stay. No, she cannot stay here. Mommy, please let Sandy stay. No, you need to take her back to the bus and put her on that bus and get her out of here. Mommy, but it's raining. No, she cannot stay. Take her out of here. And I remember just the brokenness of my heart. I said, Sandy, okay, I'll walk you back to the bus stop. And the rain was coming down. The rain was pouring. And I, as a 12-year-old, was walking and carrying my sister's suitcase and the water was up to my knees, but I had to get her to the bus and the rain kept falling and the rain was falling from the sky and the tears were falling from my eyes and my sister was struggling to make sense of why my mother was sending her away. Somehow, some way, we got to the bus stop And I hugged my sister, Sandy, and I said my farewell. And I said, Sandy, remember me. And she says, don't worry, I'll always remember you. And she got on the bus and she waved at me through the window. And when she went away, something inside of me went away with her also. You have been listening to Soul Stories, Deep, Open, and True, a production of the 224 Ecospace, where changemakers work, create, and lead. Our co-producer and sound designer is Dan Warren of Shattered Icons. Tell us what you think. Find Soul Stories on Facebook and soulstories.global. And look for me, Reverend Dr. Shelley Best, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like, share, and follow.